0: Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I am director of ECFR, and this week's podcast is going to be about the crisis of democratic capitalism. Here to discuss it with me is Martin Wolf. He is one of the most influential economic journalists in the world. He's currently the chief economics commentator at the Financial Times. His books on the 2008 financial crisis and globalization have been hugely influential. And now he's published what many are calling his magnum opus, the crisis of democratic capitalism, hence the topic of our conversation. In it, he argues that we're experiencing a period in which economic failures have eroded people's belief in global capitalism, while political failures have damaged their faith in liberal democracy. Some argue that capitalism would work better without democracy, while others believe that democracy would be better off without capitalism. But Martin argues that for all its faults, democracy and capitalism need each other if either is to thrive. So, Martin, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So should we start with the the basics, maybe just with a, a definition? What is democratic capitalism? Why does it matter? What's so special about it?
1: So I define um, democratic capitalism by articulating a little more precisely the two components. So democracy, uh, the democratic bit is liberal democracy, as defined very extensively in the literature, to be the opposite, as it were, of what's now being called illiberal democracy. So liberal democracy consists of a constrained system, of democratic politics elections of course continue to hold the decisive place in determining who holds power but in order for this to happen and for the system to work there have to be constraining institutions which guarantee that the elections are indeed fair that those who win are recognized as the legitimate winner and therefore go on to hold power, but crucially that those who lose continue to have civil and human and political rights, which allow them to continue to campaign for their side uh, and to overturn the result in the next elections. So it is a web of social, legal and political constraints within which this core idea of electoral politics operates. And that's what makes it liberal democracies. And by capitalism, I'm using this word, I don't think it's the ideal one. What I really mean is competitive market economy, which includes, of course, private ownership of uh, productive assets, which is, of course, what we think of as capitalism, but it consists of much more in terms of how innovation, change, and so forth are managed in the economy. Now, these two things, I argue, have been related historically in that before the capitalist age, which one might think of broadly speaking as the last 200, 250 years or so, there were effectively no democracies anywhere. I mean, standard analyses would show this. In the course of the 19th century, democracy, not in our sense fully universal, Uh, suffrage, but increasingly wide suffrages with political parties, competition among political parties became an increasingly significant element in the politics of powerful and important states, notably including Britain and America. And the uh, and this system turned out to work very well and uh, remarkably well. They survived two world wars against societies organized in different ways and the Cold War. And became increasingly normative for the world. There was I mean, a huge explosion in the number of countries that have adopted democratic systems in the 80s and, and 90s. So that's the great democratic success. And I argue there's a natural relationship. It's not an inevitable relationship, because once the capitalist economy gets going, it, it generates uh, um, greater prosperity, you give people the time to get involved in politics, it creates uh um urbanization huge uh economic labor forces a crucial point an increasing demand and need for education so a more highly educated population and one that increasingly demands the freedom that is in as it were the prior capitalist economy the freedom of the law the rule of law the freedom to com- compete and above all the crucial idea that we are living in a society without ascribed status, that you can become immensely rich just by providing goods and services people want. And that already originated in the 18th and increasing in the 19th century. And people said, well, this is an individualistic sort of society. Everybody should be judged on their own achievements. And in the same way, we insist that we are all entitled to say in politics and there's no way you can exclude us from it and that became increasingly accepted so there's this profound relationship historical and i think in theory but there are also tensions because there are different sorts of systems our political system is based on the idea that all citizens have an equal state they have an equal vote and an equal right to organize to be part of political associations which give Um, political power to those who are successful in the contest. Our economic system, of course, for all the fact that I think it has generated huge increases in wealth for everybody, ultimately, everybody in the long run got better off. Nonetheless, it's highly inegalitarian, it generates huge concentrations of economic power, particularly once we invented the corporation, and that starts distorting the democratic ideal. So there's profound tension between the two. So I refer to them in my book, as complementary opposites. They need each other. They have some very clear common roots, but they're also uh, in conflict with one another. And a crucial way of thinking about this is that in all prior societies, organized societies, I'm not talking about um, hunter-gatherer societies, basically power and wealth were the same thing. If you had wealth, which was land wealth on the whole, to territory, you had power and vice versa. What we're trying to do is an extraordinarily difficult thing, which is to create a society in which those who hold wealth are not necessarily those who hold power. The people who hold power are elected prime ministers or presidents are not necessarily at all wealthy or even supported by the wealthy. So that is my best answer to your question
0: is, well, what is this all about? I mean, in Turkey, that's it. That was very magisterial. Um, One of the really poignant things about this book is that you obviously thought a lot about the dream and the ideal of a democratic capitalist society but you're also very fearful about it falling apart and you anchor some of these fears in your own personal family history. Can you maybe both tell people why you're worried at the moment but also a bit about that family story which was incredibly moving?
1: Well, perhaps I'll start with the latter. I mean, in essence, I'm one of many people who uh, are the product of political refugees. In my case, crucially, people who came from uh, Europe during the Nazi era. Um, My father came from Vienna in 1937 because he could see very clearly which way the wind was blowing. And my mother escaped with her family. She was Dutch uh, in a trawler that have father succeeded in getting hold of, we've never been quite clear how, and uh, she came with her four brothers and sisters, her parents, and one other member of the household. And her grandfather, her father, sorry, my grandfather, asked all the members of his family, it was a huge family, he was one of nine, to come with them, and none of them did come. And essentially all their family was killed in the Holocaust, just as all my father's wider family beyond his immediate family was also killed. And we think something between 40 and 50 people, aunts, uncles, and cousins were killed. Now, the reason this bears has a relationship is that the great lesson, of course, one learns from this experience is that societies one considered highly civilized and ordered, Germany was one of the richest and most highly educated countries in the world, can collapse totally into the most extremes of barbarism if disasters befall. Of course, there was the First World War, but also crucially following that, A whole range of economic disasters of which the greatest of all was the great depression which led in a very short period to the emergence of hitler as the dominant politician in germany so the crucial lessons i drew from this is civilization is fragile and if you lose the confidence of the people or a big chunk of the people in the wisdom and probity and competence of the people running your country they are likely to choose Radical outsiders. Sometimes we call them populists, but let's just say radical outsiders. And um, frequently, I think most most frequently in ordered societies on the right, who will come along and say, "Give me all the power, allow me to to uh, punish all your enemies, often conveniently foreigners and weak minorities, and I will solve all your problems." And while I'm not suggesting we're there yet. It's obvious to almost anybody that we're seeing echoes of that in the politics of many countries in we thought of as consolidated democracies. And the most important example, of course, is the US.
0: So you draw an echo between that Great Depression that you were talking about and the global financial crisis in 2008 and Trump and Brexit as, I mean, obviously nothing like the, uh, yet the experience which are. Oh, respective families faced in the 1930s in Germany but can you talk a bit more about how this economic disappointment which you identify is such a powerful explanation for for the rise of of populism on the left on the right in these very uh, sophisticated and, and wealthy countries
1: so there is a big debate out there among social scientists politicians and political scientists and economists about what what comes first? Is it cultural change or economic uh, decline? My view, so two, these are interrelated. It's often very difficult to separate. Um, a lot of cultural change has economic roots and uh, and consequences, but, but I also argue there's a lot of evidence, uh, historical and more recent um, um, empirical work, which shows in very great detail how economic uh um disappointments and failures radicalize people Indeed, one of the best known recent re- uh, pieces of research which i cite shows that if you have financial crises just to take that example the tendency for politics to become subsequent to that profoundly populist uh and uh, uh, in many different ways is is very very strong so my thesis essentially is that over the last, say, the last forty years or so, um, a number of long-term trends, most of them unavoidable, and not overwhelmingly linked to globalization, though it's a factor more in finance, in my view, than trade, but it's a factor in both, um, have transformed the economic position, uh, the relative e- uh, economic position, not so much the absolute position of very large parts of our society, and particularly uh, and crucially the old industrial working class, which was a very powerful element in our societies. It was the bastion of center-left parties. The trade union movement was a way of organizing these people within a political context. And I have to say that half a century ago when I was young, I didn't recognize how crucial this was because I suppose one took it for granted. Um, but a lot of the pressure and and the ideas for what I think of as the mid-20th century settlement, the social democratic settlement or the liberal sett- settlement in the US, the FDR, the New Deal settlement perhaps, uh, came from those groups. It's worth remembering that in a country like Britain. Um, not far short of half the labor force was in industry broadly defined 60 years ago i mean it was enormous and it's now down to about and then we're talking very broadly about 15. this is an enormous transformation and we weren't aware of how profound that was to these people their relative position in society their ability to organize themselves um, and the ability of the organizations they were part of to have political salience and i think this created insecurity fear of downward mobility there's a lot of literature on that anxiety um uh some people call uh status anxiety relative position anxiety this uh then i argue was reinforced massively by the financial crisis it's not as severe as the great depression thank god and therefore the responses weren't as Wild. I mean, the, the discrediting of the establishment was not as great. But the, um, the financial crisis is a big economic shock. The, the economic shock was very great in the short run. There were masses of defaults. Lots of people lost their jobs. But it's more important than that. A financial crisis is an incredibly visible, unmissable a uh, signal to anybody watching at all, which is basically everybody, when this sort of thing happens, if you think our bank's going to be open tomorrow, well, people start noticing. And they, it's an admissible signal that the people in charge of pretty well everything, you know, the politicians, the bureaucrats, the central banks, if you separate them out, the financiers, the banks, uh, pretty well the entire establishment have no idea what they're doing. And when it all goes wrong, even worse, and it was a very big thing in the US, they were all bailed out with our money, as it were, and nobody went to prison. And everybody pretended it was all fine. And this was then followed, and I showed this, by massive fiscal austerity. Much of it loaded onto government spending, which, of course, damaged precisely the people I've described uh, sort of the middle to low of middle to not to bottom, not the bottom, the middle uh, and lower middle parts of, of our societies, and so that was a two for one, as it were. And I think by 2015 or so, in both the U.S. and U.K., particularly vigorous there, I think, because the financial sector was such a big part, not only their economy, but of their vision of the future of their economy. And so I think they got very angry. And when people came along and said, they're all crooks, we have to drain the swamp. Well, that's not surprising. Of course, the populace came along in Britain, they came along with the idea. Well, really what's pr- the problem here is Europeans, they're, they're screwing us. I mean, you just have to find an enemy. It doesn't in a way matter who, nor does it even matter whether it makes sense because the people who might make sense are now completely discredited. And the very final point I make is if you look at it, and I've got some, lots of numbers on this, I do numbers. Uh, I mean, the truth is that the financial crisis was a turning point for most Western countries. Germany is really the only exception. Real incomes to head, per head now are far below what they would have been in the pre, if the pre-financial crisis trends had continued. Britain is striking. It's down there with Spain. GDP per head is now 30 percent below what it would have been if the pre-crisis trend had continued. And that means that the financial crisis was not only a huge shock which destabilized politics, it has had long lasting legacies and people are giving up on the idea that growth and rising living standards for them is actually possible. That's a transformative moment
0: in our history. So that's a brilliant, very evocative description of of how politics has changed, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world. But you also, in the book, talk about some of the the alternatives that emerge to democratic capitalism, not just as visions in the West, but also in other countries. And you have these two different variants of authoritarian capitalism. Can you describe them for our listeners? Well, this is what we're seeing at the moment.
1: I think there are other possibilities, but we've seen two things going on. Um, one is that in countries with notionally democratic political processes or that had processes that were trying to be democratic uh, and to degree had succeeded, um, that uh, people were elected who were nationalist, populist, conservative culturally or in religious terms, uh, representing the people whom you might, I suppose, in in our terminology, might refer to as the silent majority, I don't know, who felt alienated by the changes their societies had been experiencing in the modernization in 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 modernization, in adjusting to this very changing world we've been living through, these people then essentially um, hollow out the democratic and uh, capitalist system from within by using their powers of appointment, uh, uh, their legislative powers, essentially to um, establish permanent power to make elections increasingly uncompetitive, to um, make the legal institutions, uh, the institutions that control force in society, politics, army, uh, obviously the judicial systems and so forth I mentioned, basically they're creatures. Uh, And in the process, you end up with a regime like say, uh, Auburn in, in Hungary, um, peace in Poland, it's more all they're all different. Um, Erdogan in uh, in Turkey. Uh, uh, and there are many other would be or attempted uh, efforts in that direction. And I think it's pretty obvious, given the coup attempt at the end of his term, that sort of Trump wanted to do that. Thank heavens he didn't know how to do it. Um, but it's increasingly clear that there are elements in the Republican Party who have worked out how to do this, so that is one version
0: you call that demagogic authoritarian capitalism,
1: yes, and the other version is bureaucratic or organized autocratic capitalism, which we now associate with the Chinese communist system, um, possibly Vietnam. And but you could imagine some of the former turning into the latter if they start going. The way, say, the Italian fascists did, corporatist, highly corporatist and organised. We're not really seeing that yet. And that of the of these two challenges, I think the former is the danger that we will succumb to that. I can see quite a number of countries in the West which might end up there. And the latter is really a very formidable rival because they have shown. At least so far, and you can look at other countries which have some of these carry a few of these characteristics. Um, Singapore say which uh, have shown immense capacity to manage the economy in an undemocratic political framework, and these are genuine challenges because. The truth is our system is not working very well. We are not managing to solve our political problems, any of the problems we've talked about. Our economies are not really growing well. And we're generating huge inequality and lots of people are unhappy. So that's our real problem. And China's a giant and it's a superpower. So those are the rivals and they are de- the fate we must avoid. And the latter are serious competitors.
0: Until quite recently, most people thought that these, that, particularly that, that latter variant of bureaucratic authoritarian capitalism might succeed quite well for a certain amount of time. But one of the problems which all autocracies have is imperfect knowledge and inability to course correct in the way that, that democracy does in a, in a messy but highly effective way. Over the last 15 years or so, we've been in what many people call a a democratic recession and and people's faith in the ability of democracies to course correct has gone down a little bit and they've also seen that some of these more bureaucratic regimes have been quite good at turning on a dime, as we've just seen with the end of zero COVID in China at the moment. What's your feeling about that? Do you think that people underestimated the ability of um, bureaucratic systems to adapt, to stay in touch with public opinion? Is that easier now, maybe, with the internet and with all these different sources of information than it was in the 1930s or other times when, when autocracies ended up being outcompeted by democracies.
1: But it is worth noting in passing that from an economic point of view, at least up to the war, Hitler's Germany did very well. It was a good example of successful bureaucratic authoritarianism. Um, And Hitler was ultimately defeated because he ended up fighting the whole world, as it were. It was a close run thing. So we shouldn't be complacent. Now, I'm not comparing, obviously, please, uh, China with uh, that system. But the, the truth is they have very real problems. I think the concentration of power in Xi's hand is a problem. It's a regime that makes lots of mistakes. It's perfectly obvious, but they also have some real assets. They can mobilize resources on an incredible scale. They can run a market economy, not perfect, but what it is. Uh, they have an enormous population of highly skilled and highly motivated human beings and uh, they've done very well so far so they, we have to take them very very seriously and on the other hand our systems have shown themselves increasingly incapable of doing anything um, um our, our policy systems seem paralyzed and take britain and america again, we don't seem to be able to do anything be new though that's where the biden administration is a bit encouraging i think and the And politics is log jammed with two opposing forces who find it difficult to talk to one another or moderates who are unable to do anything. We don't seem to be able to build anything easily. Again, that might be changing now. So, yeah, I think it's very important to recognize that while I love the values in our system and I believe in them passionately, that we shouldn't assume that they're going to succeed.
0: So what makes your book, I I think, unusual is firstly, as you said, you do numbers very effectively. There's a lot of data and evidence to back up your claims. But the other thing which maybe other people don't do as much is to to think about what we can do about it and to come up with practical solutions. About half of the book is devoted to to thinking our way out of the, the problems that we're in at the moment. Obviously, in a perfect world, all your recommendations would be realized, but things don't always work out that nicely. But and we, also, we've only got a few minutes left in this podcast. But if we were to imagine that we lived in wolf world in the future, what big policy changes do you think uh, would be brought in?
1: It's very difficult to focus on this. And perhaps it's one of my failures is I don't think there is a single leave or even two or three that can be pulled. I think uh, we have to do quite a lot. And I do think that it's much more difficult than it was in 30, 40 years ago, because our states genuinely have less room. Uh, but uh, here are the a few things. I think we have to be very, very serious about competition policy and new competition policy, because the competitive challenges created by the new tech sector are unprecedented and the, its impact on the world is unprecedented, I think. And we need to be thinking about, not only about competition policy, but broad, more broadly, how we regulate the new, um, digital, tech, uh, and media, and AI environment. They're all related. And I just think we're way behind on this, and I've got some ideas, and I'm just going to focus on economics. The second most radical idea, which is to reduce financialization of our economy, is to eliminate the tax deductibility of interest, which uh, most economists recognize as an incredible distortion, and it would reduce the tendency for the leverage of our financials the amount of debt in our economies and also crucially reduce the power of highly leveraged entities to purchase up uh, purchase uh, productive assets the third thing i'm very very keen on is really acting seriously against tax avoidance tax evasion of, and about tax avoidance evasion is also part of it um, the role of tax havens, which I discuss in detail, and making the tax system more credibly fair, and this involves a lot of different changes. But you know, one of the most striking things is the average tax rate for the wealthiest in America is lower essentially than any other class in the society, and that's obviously wrong and intolerable, and it deprives government of the resources it needs to deliver the public goods that the people clearly need. So. If I'm going to suggest just three things out of the economic side, those are some of the radical ideas which I know won't happen, but which I think we should be thinking about. I've tried to put forward crucially ideas in politics and economics, which while clearly not within the current or current uh, consensus are things you could imagine that parties which are serious about ameliorating our situation without revolutionary overthrow, the equivalent of FDR, for example, in the middle of the 20th century, or the the Attlee government, that they might be thinking about. Because I think we might be moving to a situation in which we will need such reform if our system is to survive.
0: I think that's maybe one of the most radical and countercultural parts of your book, that you quote Shrine of of Apollo at Adelphi, nothing in excess. And it's a very unfashionable goal in today's media environment to try and avoid the excesses, to, to look for sensible, evidence-based ideas which are very balanced. How do you think that this credo is going to survive in a political environment that is operating in a much more fragmented world where people tend to gather in self radicalizing tribes and filter bubbles, and where the societal basis for those kinds of moderate approaches, such as FDR, just seem to have disappeared in, in much of the world?
1: Well, I think this is obviously the core question, and I'm not a political genius or even a politician, so I don't know the answer. I'm pretty sure that we can't stay where we are, not indefinitely, and that, well, thank heavens, where it seemed to me to be a a fair way from a total societal breakdown, but that what you're describing is a situation in which that's the natural place for us to end because the situation you describe is one effectively a policy paralysis with everybody screaming at one another and nobody able to do anything. And again, I do think Biden is trying to move this Uh, and show that you can act. So there are some people who at least understand the challenge. And I think there are some other politicians. I think actually Emmanuel Macron understands this need too. Now, whether it would succeed or not, I don't know. And I think his aim is very much in my spirit. I don't know whether the center can bring itself together to pursue these sorts of reforms as happened in the uh, middle of the 20th century, but I'm reasonably sure that I'm not reasonable, I'm certain that this is the only way that could possibly work. The complete reconstruction from scratch of our societies is an immoral and impossible activity and it's always led to catastrophe. Uh, it could only be carried out by a dictatorship and no sane person should propose that. The sort of demagogic autocrat we are, might seem likely to end up with, they're always incompetent, brutal, and corrupt. Uh, we shouldn't go there and leaving things exactly as they are is also intolerable so I think my if you're faced with the all alternatives to the position I'm advancing are intolerable so you have to choose it whether that what seems to me obvious logic will actually influence people because they don't really get excited by rational reform. Well, I don't know. But if we don't do this, I am really, really worried, which really worried, which is why I write the book.
0: I think that's a, it's a very good place to end the discussion. There is one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our, our bookshelf segment. Obviously, I'm going to recommend Martin's book to our readers, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, available from all good bookshop. Have you got any other books on your bookshelf that you'd like to recommend, Martin?
1: Well, I, I hadn't realized this was part of it, but I'll recommend one because it's complementary and I think brilliant. It's uh, also fairly recent. It's Brad DeLong's Slouching Towards Utopia, a book he's been working on for about 20 years, I think, on what happened after the great economic transformation that began in 1870, what we sometimes call the Second Industrial Revolution, which transformed the economic system of the world profoundly. And in his view, it was very, very imperfect. So we were slouching towards utopia. We it changed a lot of the world in the process. But his view, it's complementary to mine, is that with the global financial crisis, for reasons we don't fully understand, that era seems to have come to an end. And I think it's a very long book, but I think it's a wonderfully written and fascinating book
0: wonderful we'll, we'll put up links to those two books on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts if you've enjoyed listening to us please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you've used to download it from and while you're there it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help other people fun- come to the podcast but for now, from Martin Wolf and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Marlene Rieden.